0: Hello, and welcome to Baha'i Blogcast, with me, your host, Rain Wilson. This is where I interview members of the Baha'i faith and other friends from all over the world about their hearts and minds and souls, their spiritual journeys, what they're interested in, and what makes them tick. Enjoy. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, people of all different races, creeds, beliefs, and hairstyles. Uh, thank you for tuning in once again to the Baha'i blogcast. It's me, your host, Rain Wilson, of course. I mean, come on, who else is it going to be? And, um, we have a super interesting and timely interview, um, considering the state of the world all of a sudden. Uh, this is very exciting. I was, uh, thinking about global pandemics. And then I was remembering my old buddy from Los Angeles, Dr. Robert Kim Farley, or Dr. Bob, as I like to call him, and uh, that he's an epidemiologist. What does it say? Epidemiologist? (laughs) Epidemiologist. Epidemiologist. Okay. You got it. (laughs) Um, And used to kind of, what was your position with the the city of Los Angeles?
1: Yes, I was a director of the Communicable Disease Control and Prevention Division of the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health. That's fantastic. So
0: I would, of course, call Doctor Bob any anytime I had a, a pain anywhere in, in my rib cage. Would say, and I always had my Swiss Army knife ready. That's right. And um, <laughs> ask him if I had the plague. So um, I thought this is this is fantastic. This guy is a super Baha'i, super uh, awesome dude. There's a lot of facets to this. Uh, individual that we're going to find out about over the course of this interview. But I want to dive right in, uh, Bob, to the current state of the world and this pandemic that we're undergoing, uh, this coronavirus, COVID-19. We're going to try and get this podcast out, like, as soon as possible. We're going to try and turn it around and, like two days or something and, and put it right out so that this is really relevant. We don't usually do this in the Baha'i podcast. Usually it's kind of uh, evergreen interviews about, you know, big ideas and personal life stories. But this one we're going to make about a virus. Tell us what's going on in the world right now. Talk us uh, through from the very beginning. A lot of our listeners might be in places that the virus hasn't reached yet. We might have listeners, a lot of Baha'i pioneers from Madagascar or Sri Lanka or Vietnam that you know maybe there's no virus there yet who knows but tell
1: us what's going on uh, in the world right now. I think in a sense the operative word you use there was yet I think that's the very definition of a pandemic which the World Health Organization is now considering COVID-19 as being which means basically we can probably expect this to be everywhere in the world at some time so in terms of talking ones through it we have to realize this is a new virus We've not seen this one before, but it is in the family of what we call coronaviruses uh, that include the common cold, by the way, but also SARS, which you may have remembered, the sudden uh, severe acute respiratory syndrome, as well as MERS, which is the Middle East respiratory syndrome. Now, where we're having a little difference in this is the fact that uh, with SARS, there was an epidemic, but that genie, if you will, got put back into the bottle within nine months. It was uh, contained. Uh, MERS continues to... Smol- so it was less uh, infectious? Less infectious, exactly right. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Less contagious, if you will. Uh, whereas uh, MERS continues to smolder, but again, not uh, uh, great numbers like we're seeing with now COVID-19. So uh, fortunately for COVID-19, our case fatality rate is much lower, probably around 2% as compared to MERS, which is 34.5%. Uh, and uh, also SARS, which is about nine and a half percent. A friend of mine had MERS, by the way. Okay, How um, did... for real. And uh, yeah, it almost
0: almost killed him. It was it's crazy, crazy yeah,
1: story. Very severe illness, and there's so there's actually some unique aspects of COVID nineteen. First of all, as you have rightly pointed out, it's more contagious. It seems to spread easier, so that's why we are seeing it uh, go from uh, uh, you know contained at first in China to rapidly spreading around the world with hotspots uh, coming up in, in different countries in Asia and in Europe. And I think that a lot of the countries where it has emerged now is been developed countries. They have good testing mechanisms, things like this to find it. But what I'm more concerned about is when this gets introduced into, let's say, countries in Africa, uh, Nigeria, with uh, highly populated, uh, densely populated cities like Lagos that do not have the robust health care and public health systems. Right. And that's where it's going to be uh, uh, potentially a much more um, wildfire approach, if you will.
0: Now, some viruses, like I know the Spanish flu, uh, dipped down over the summer, and um, like viruses are sensitive to heat mm-hmm. or they don't do as well in heat. Would that prevent them from maybe reaching... Parts of Africa or?
1: Well, I think the, um, if you will, it's the flip side of the coin. Yes, in the Northern Hemisphere here, we're still in the cool climates and we are seeing, you know, this rapid spread. It's uh, very possible when we start maybe some dips because of some seasonality. We don't know about that with this virus, but uh, other uh, coronaviruses do have some seasonality to them. Uh, We then, you know, could move into the Southern Hemisphere, that they will start getting cooler and, and we could see then more outbreaks occurring in the Southern Hemisphere.
0: Right. So, do we have any idea what the future of this virus means? Like, what are the different, um, what are the different uh, possibilities mm-hmm. of the of the of the track of this virus? I
1: outcome? actually think about there being maybe three different scenarios. Okay. Uh, the first scenario is more the SARS-like scenario, whereby you know you have uh, uh, it comes up. But then there's containment efforts, and you put it back into the bottle, so to speak, the genie Mm -hmm. back into the bottle. That's not going to happen now anymore. The cat's out of the bag in terms of COVID-19, and it's spread around the world. The second possible scenario is what I call the fits and starts model, in the sense that you have like a matchbox, and you're individually striking matches in them and throwing them into the forest. Now, some places it will create a little fire. Other places it may not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's where we're seeing these hot spots developing in different spots as uh, the virus gets introduced into those countries. So I think that's certainly where we're at right now and is mm-hmm. happening. But the third scenario is, is a real likelihood, and that is that this will ultimately become an endemic disease. By that, we mean it's always with us. There may be seasonalities to it. Coming, like a cold or a flu. Like a cold or so th- a flu. So
0: we're going to have like cold flu and COVID-19.
1: It could be. Uh, and I think that what will happen, though, is that uh, over time, it's probably going to take another year, year and a half to have a vaccine. Mm-hmm. I'm fairly confident we will get a vaccine for this. And that also will then perhaps drive this to ultimately extinction if we can.
0: Okay. So that's that's another option mm-hmm. as well. So in Wuhan, China, yes. it seems like they've limited the disease and almost, it's almost ground to a halt if we believe the numbers coming out of China. Um, so this, the, the the draconian measures they put into place mm-hmm. by not letting people mm-hmm. leave their apartment blocks mm-hmm. and shutting down trains and planes and, and large events and stuff like that seems to have worked. But does that mean that? The people of China or Wuhan will not get it again, or will it kind of come back around in various
1: ways and and come back? You know what I mean? Yes. So a couple of things. One, I think the, the positive side out of China is the fact that indeed cases are dropping. And so that shows that, you know, these efforts of social distancing and all can actually have an impact on the virus, that there is life after COVID-19 in that sense. Um, so I think that that's one thing to realize is that uh, we, we have the ability to, to modify or blunt this epidemic. Uh, with respect to whether it, um, one can get it a second time around, that actually, the jury is a bit out. We think that uh, there is going to be immunity. As to how long that immunity would last, whether it's short-lived or longer, is really not able to be told at this stage. We'll be looking at that. That's but an I mean, important would, it,
0: issue. would it come back around to the to the geographical territory, though? Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like they've limited it now, yes. but it might spread around, yes. and then some guy in Peru gets <laughs> it and then yeah. flies to China a year from yeah. now, and it starts to spread all over again.
1: Yeah. So I think a couple of things. One is that um, when you have done very uh, as you mentioned, draconian uh, methods of uh, social distancing, we actually in epidemiology um, call that you have isolation, you have quarantine. They often are talking about that being quarantined, but in reality, it's a its a different practice. It's called cordon sanitaire. It's a French word that's come into the English language in epidemiology where you actually are sealing off like cities. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's different than just quarantining a small area of a city or something like that. So uh, that method of cordon sanitaire, which has been rarely used uh, in modern times, is a very um, severe method of uh, social distancing. As to whether or not what happens is that you end up with still a lot of susceptible people, the numbers fall down in terms of uh, cases, uh, people come back out, you know, is it possible that it could be reintroduced? And those still susceptibles could come with, a if you will, a second wave. It's possible. So we'll have to look at see how this goes. So the these measures, the the
0: cordon, what is it? Sanitaire. Called? Sanitaire. Um, it sounds like a it sounds like a f- cheese. It sounds that's like right, a French cheese.
1: That's cordon bleu. Okay. Um, but
0: do um, are these measures? They're they're predominantly meant to limit the number of people going to the hospital right away. So one of the main reasons that we have these things in place, as far as I understand, and Mm -hmm. tell me where Mm -hmm. I'm right and where I'm wrong, is to, so we're not going to football games and NBA games and flying around and spreading it. And our hospital system, which is woefully underfunded anyway, all of a sudden is overwhelmed by hundreds of thousands of cases all at once. So um, part of the reason that we're uh, implementing these strategies that they that they put in place mm-hmm. in, in China and South Korea is to um, is to have the disease not spike with a lot of cases immediately, but have more of a long-term people getting the disease over the next several months. So uh,
1: Rain, you've put it really well. I think the idea of uh, what we're really trying as, as uh, prof- public health professionals is to blunt this epidemic. Uh, instead of having that spike, as you mentioned a quick speak, uh, peak that goes ahead and overwhelms healthcare systems as what happened in um, Wuhan City and Hubei province and that's what mm-hmm. one reason why their case fatality rates were so much higher there is Because I think people who were seriously ill were not able to get to hospitals and get mm. the treatment that they needed Whereas if you look at the case fatality rate Outside of Hubei province in China, it mm-hmm. was much much lower because okay. uh, it was they'd already put into place some of these uh, social distancing measures were blunting the epidemic, and therefore it was not overwhelming their healthcare systems. So there's two aspects of it. One is to blunt the epidemic, slow it down so that you don't get the peak, so that we can, in fact, have our healthcare systems uh, be able to um, ramp up with surge capacity to handle the increase, but not overwhelm them. The other thing that happens with the social distancing is that in this particular virus, it especially is um, hitting those who are elderly, or those people who have underlying medical conditions. So to the degree which we can slow this epidemic down and also trying especially to make sure that those who are in these vulnerable groups, the elderly with multiple medical conditions, uh, 80% of those who are dying from this disease are over 60 years of age. Mm -hmm. 75% of those who are dying from this disease have underlying medical conditions. Wow. So if we can also make sure that they especially are being protected from uh, others that have been out and about, Uh, that's important as well. Now, do these measures also limit the number of people who ultimately
0: will be infected? Or are the same number of people really going to be infected? It's just about when? It's just like not all at one time and more spread out?
1: I think there's a little of both. I think by having uh, decreased intensity of transmission, if you will, there'll be some people that would have otherwise gotten exposure that will never get exposure. So it will mean- Never, ever, never, never ever. Never, ever. It's possible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think also it is what I call buying time. So we are in a race to get better uh, therapeutics those antiviral medications. Mm-hmm. So that if someone does have severe illness, we know how to treat them and have that become less uh, fatal. Secondly, it's buying us the time to develop the vaccines that we will need that will ultimately conquer this. So if we can go ahead and spread this thing out so that, again, someone has not been exposed, we now have vaccines, they get the vaccine. So even if they then become exposed, they now are protected. So that's that's another thing that we're buying time as well. So
0: uh, for your average listener, and they're probably getting this information already on their on their local news channel and on the Internet, but what advice can you give people uh, right now about how to take care of themselves uh, during this pandemic?
1: Yeah, so I think one of the things that's very important is to be listening to national, state, and local public health departments because they're the ones that are in a position to be able to know when do we pull some of these triggers, if you will, of having social distancing occurring. And that usually occurs when we move uh, into what we call community spread. All right, so at the beginning... of an epidemic like this, we are practicing in public health, we call it containment strategies. By that, I mean you identify cases, you isolate them because they are infectious to others, you then look at their close contacts, and they're still healthy, but you quarantine them for the period of the incubation of the disease, which in the case of COVID-19 is 14 days. That's why you get this 14 days of, of quarantine. So if in case one of those people who were exposed to this um person who is infectious they come down with disease you're monitoring them right away they then isolate also from the rest of uh community so that you have um that practice of containment going on but at some time you end up with what we call community spread and by that i mean as you detect cases you don't see any history of travel to an infected area You don't see any history of having been uh, uh, in known contact with another case. It just kind
0: of pops up Pops up, exactly Mm -hmm. right.
1: So then you have to move from a containment strategy to a mitigation strategy in the community. And by that, you then start instituting uh, what we call non-pharmaceutical interventions, or NPIs for short. And that is the things that you can do at both the personal level as well as at the community level. So at the personal level, it's those things that you've probably been hearing much in the news about uh, ensuring that you're covering your cough, that you're not going out if you're sick, that you are um, avoiding... Handshaking, so you know maybe moving to a namaste type greeting or Japanese bow or something like that mm-hmm. that you can do. I'm not actually How about an air high five. An air high five is a wonderful one. Okay. Yeah, let's just Good. do that right now. Okay, okay, <laughs> okay we okay. just did. It. All right, now uh, the um, I'm not actually a favor or fan much of the fist bump because if you think about it, if you were you know wiping the back of your hand on your nose and then you're fist bumping, that's exactly yeah. the contaminated surface, right? or we're talking about uh covering your cough by uh actually coughing into your sleeve uh your elbow well now all of a sudden if you're trying to do an elbow bump you know that's probably not the most and i heard that the virus can li- actually live in fabric too it can uh probably not as long as what you could see on a surface like like plastic or metal which could even be as min- as long as days for some coronaviruses so we're assuming that that could be here as well mm-hmm. So um, those then are so even
0: a hug where there's no skin contact. If you've like sneezed into your sleeve and you're rubbing your sleeve on the back of someone, potentially.
1: Potentially. So again, probably hugging uh, would be another thing to avoid for a while. Uh, You know, not obviously close family members that you're around with every day, but the idea of uh, strangers uh, or just people, lots of people at a meeting, for example. So these these non-pharmaceutical interventions at the personal level are important, washing hands frequently, for example, okay. uh, soap and water, uh, 20 seconds, that's singing happy birthday two times uh, in a row, or maybe uh, allow a paw 20 uh, times. Uh, <laughs> we'll have to time times. that. We'll yeah, have to yeah. that. Uh, so I think that um, that's that's an important measure to take. Now, when you start really seeing the community spread, that's when we start doing social uh distancing as part of our non-pharmaceutical interventions, again, when we don't have vaccines and we don't have uh, treatment medications. And those are the things where, like, for example, people who are working moving to telecommuting if they can, Uh, those that are in schools moving to long-distance internet-based learning Mm -hmm. uh, if they can, Um, these sorts of things that then make it so that you have no large meetings and gatherings.
0: Watching Netflix instead of going to the movie theater. Exactly, Unf- or Amazon Prime or
1: other uh, sponsors of your program. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, um, uh, but that's exactly right. So you, you av- avoid um, these crowded spaces until such time as, again, these numbers have started to come down and you're not seeing the community transmission going on. And the other thing, of course, is that uh, ultimately we, we talk about containment, we talk about mitigation, we will ultimately enter a recovery phrase as well. We I mean, we will overcome uh, COVID-19 yeah. in the end. So okay. I think that's important for your listenership to understand is that, uh, you know, this is a coronavirus. We know about coronaviruses. Uh, this is a new one. So we have to be careful. It can mutate, things like this. But I think even still on mutation, I I was asked this the other day, do you, do I think Uh, this will mutate. I'm a professor at UCLA in the School of Public Health and was giving a talk at the Anderson School of Business. And the question came up, do I think that this virus can mutate? And so I said, uh, and because of that, you know, could it get worse? I said, well, actually, yes, uh, coronaviruses have a tendency to mutate. But if you think about it evolutionarily, it is to the virus's advantage to become more contagious, but milder, in its severity because it doesn't do the virus any good if it kills a person because then mm-hmm. they can't transmit to others oh. so actually typically what would you see is reversion to a milder disease not to a more severe disease oh that's
0: interesting mm-hmm. okay wow wow
1: so it could be that when the common cold was first introduced
0: to the human species that it was a deadly plague. Well, that's you know, a nice speculation. You know, yeah. fifty thousand years ago, and then it just kind of settled in and became and this
1: endemic uh, disease, yeah. really, relatively mild. And it's uh, maybe effect. I should become an epidemiologist. I think so, or at least a researcher on uh, to... viruses. That sounds great. Yeah. Okay. Good. I'll remember to say that the next time. Perfect. Uh, Rain Wilson, the renowned uh, scientist, uh, once told me a that. that uh, yep. Know, that uh, you know, actually, if you think about it, the coronaviruses uh, that caused the common cold were once maybe much more severe.
0: I just want credit somehow. I want, I, I just I, gave it to you, right? I want, no, I want. I want like <laughs> a plaque. a engra- plaque or a plague engraved. All right. plaque. So, one other question before we move on is about the fatality rate. You know, I've heard everything from you know one to three or four percent. But if let's say. There's 300 plus million people in the United States. If 100 million people happen to get this disease, and there's, you know, um, a death, you know, a fatality rate of one even one percent, that's a million people dead in the United States. Is are these numbers
1: realistic, or do they do they hold? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things to to realize here. Is that just like in uh, Wuhan city in Hubei province, the death rate was much higher. Uh, the reason being is that The health systems got overwhelmed. They did not have access to health care that might have needed it. So that probably artificially raised it. The other thing to realize is that this case fatality rate, as we call it, is composed of two numbers. So there is the number of deaths, and those are probably fairly accurately being reported Mm -hmm. because they're the most, you know, tip of the iceberg. Mm -hmm. Then that's divided by the number of cases. Now, the number of cases is probably vastly Underreported, because a lot of cases are mild. Eighty percent of the COVID nineteen cases are mild, so that you might not even seek medical care. There could it. have been thousands or tens of
0: thousands of people, even in Wuhan province, that just felt like they had a bad, yes, crappy cold and just
1: stayed in, yes, and just didn't leave. And that precisely, yeah. and so that denominator, if you will, that you divide the number of deaths into to get case fatality rate, could actually be a lot larger. And therefore, uh, I think that we would actually, when we have better ways of looking at uh, and have better understanding, we'll see that the case fatality rate will probably drop because of the fact that there's a number of cases that are not being counted. Also, another term that's not being uh, used very much uh, that I see uh, in the media is another thing that we use in epidemiology, which is the case infection rate, to infection rate. Okay, now, given the fact that that there are also not only mild cases of covid-19 there are cases that are asymptomatic and those show no symptoms whatsoever mm. so therefore if you looked at how many people got infected to how many people died are those people carriers people that don't They, have any they symptoms? could be but although we think that's probably most efficient to be able to transmit when you are symptomatic that's when you're coughing mm-hmm. it's a droplet spread infection and therefore it's probably much more efficient mm-hmm. so yes you probably can infect others while you're asymptomatic without symptoms but it's probably not the, the as contagious shall we say mm-hmm. but if you look at what that infection rate will be compared to the deaths i think we're talking maybe another order of magnitude less in terms of the death to infection rate. So I think that's mm. another thing people to, to realize.
0: Oh, ah, okay. This has been super helpful, really clear explanations, uh, really helpful uh, for the time. Uh, many people that will be listening to this podcast, uh, I'll put the number down on the description of the podcast so they can skip all this stuff and just kind of get to more to your story in, in case they don't want to hear any more about COVID-19 or it's months later or something like that. So I would love to hear how you got here. I, I want to hear more about your story. I want to hear about how you became an epidemiologist and um, married the lovely Hanju mm-hmm. and your journey, your spiritual journey as a Baha'i. It's kind of rare to hear uh, the spiritual journey of a man of science. So can you take us back from to the very beginning, Mr. Kim Farley?
1: Yes. So, you know, um, it was very interesting that... Uh, my parents preserved something that was uh, very interesting from high school days. I had a really great um, teacher, English teacher, who asked us all to, every week, to develop an essay on some topic. Mm-hmm. And so at one topic, he asked, What is, because okay, so it's credo, I believe. Okay. And what is it that you believe? It was very interesting to me that although I came from a background where my father was, uh, Presbyterian, my mother was uh, Episcopalian, obviously Christian. What part of the
0: United States are we talking about here?
1: Well, that's a good point. My father was actually in the Navy. So we moved around every couple of years of my life. Mm -hmm. Um, I lived in uh, the island of Kodiak, Alaska, for a couple of years. No kidding, wow. Yeah, lived in Panama um, uh, for a couple of years as a very young uh, child. And then uh, was actually in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, uh, as a 12 to 14 a year prisoner? old. prisoner? Uh, no, luckily, I was before that time. Um, but uh, we were evacuated during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Oh my goodness. Yeah, so that was, uh, had one hour with uh, one suitcase uh, to leave on a five day trip to, on a troop ship. So that was kind of an experience that I had along the way. But going back to this issue of uh, what I believe. Credo. Credo. I actually had written down that, you know, there's many different religions and I found that, you know, if there's only one God, they really uh, should be all valid and that, you know, there should be uh, an understanding of, of the unity between religions. So I think that that's one thing that I realized I, like I had.
0: You, I like how you said that in the bell, just the chime yes. of the clock just went off at the same time. Well,
1: that's, that's a mindfulness meditation bell. Oh, nice. So I think we're all calm here and okay. uh, can I hope so. realize that we are, are in the moment. Uh, which is great. Um, so, when I went to college, I began then to start. This was UC Santa Barbara. I began to explore more about this uh, aspect. I took a course in religious studies that was taught in a very interesting way. Rather than saying, "Okay, we're going to spend two weeks on Buddhism, two weeks on Hinduism, uh, two weeks on Christianity, whatever," the professor actually talked about. We're going to talk about concepts. Concept of God, concept of creation, these sorts of things. And I realized, again, more and more the, the the commonalities as compared to the differences between religions. So I started to explore different religions, and I realized that each of them had a kernel of truth in it that I couldn't reject. Mm. Yet, at the same time, if you joined it, you had to say it was the only one or uh, the last one mm. or that you were saved and others weren't. And I just happened to stumble across a lecture being on given on campus about the Baha'i faith. So I said, well, I'll go check that out. And for me, I realized it was like pieces of a puzzle suddenly fitting together. Here was a religion saying, look, all the religions are coming from the same source and that they really are interrelated, interdependent. They're like chapters in one book, if you will, um, grades in one school. And so I think that uh, to me, it was extremely attractive. And I was an electronic engineer at that time at UC Santa Barbara. So for me, especially this idea that science and religion can agree. Hmm. And I especially like this one story I'd heard at that time where Abdu'l-Bahá once asked a scientist who was feeling that uh, there wasn't agreement, he asked, uh, well, how would you measure the constituents of the water in the sea? And the scientist said, well, that's very easy. I'd take a, you know, a portion of that, I'd put it in my machines, and I could tell how much salt and other minerals there were. And Abdu'l-Bahá said, very good. Then Abdu'l-Bahá asked him, well, how would you tell what was in the water of a tear? And the scientist said, well, actually, I'd just do the same thing. You know, I'd have the person cry and I'd, you know, get the tears and I put in the same machine. and I could tell you what the constituents of that water was as well. Abdu'l-Bahá said again, very good. Then Abdu'l-Bahá asked the scientist, he said, can you tell me if the tear was shed because of joy or because of sorrow? And the scientist, mm-hmm. well, you know, I can't tell that from, from this. And abdul Ha said, this is the difference. That science explains the outward and material, whereas religion explains the cause and the reason behind it.
0: Oh, that's such a beautiful story. Yeah. I've never
1: heard that one before. Yeah. And so I, I really felt that was something very nice. And I like mm-hmm. the idea that, uh, the concept that uh, science without religion lacks a moral purpose for its use, but religion without science can become mere superstition. Mm, So, mm. I I think that that was something very attractive to me. And so, actually, over a a few months' time, uh, I really uh, became very attracted uh, to the teachings of the Baha'i faith. And um, my parents actually wanted me to... uh, uh, They were concerned about this. uh, Sure. And so, I I was respectful. uh, This is 70s, 80s? Yep, 70s. Mm -hmm. So, I was respectful for this. And so, then... um, Uh, I was not actually becoming a Baha'i, even though I really was feeling it uh, very much in my heart. But then what happened was uh, I stayed over the summer one time at UC Santa Barbara, and there was a a number of high school um, students who had come in for a summer experience. I was a counselor in the uh, dorm for them, and one of the students came to me, and he said um, he was having some difficulty, that he was... uh, Uh, had discovered for him transcendental meditation that he had felt was something very important in his life, but his parents were not very uh, keen about that. And so I counseled him. I said, you know, ultimately you're going to be responsible for your own spiritual growth and you need to take responsibility for that. And, uh, you know, he appreciated that and he left. And uh, then I said to myself, well, what am I saying? You know, here I said that, you know, you have to take responsibility for your own spiritual growth, even maybe if parents are not as uh, keen about it. And so I, I called up uh, one of the Baha'i friends uh, and uh, said, I'd like to become a Baha'i kind of out of the blue right. in the middle of the summertime. So it was uh, really something that I recognized I needed to to uh, uh And walk how did that impact your life and change the
0: course of your life and impact your studies?
1: Yeah, I think for me, it really opened up the idea of especially having a profession for the service of humanity. And so uh, I began to think more and more about how can I do that. Mm -hmm. Um, What happened for me then was actually uh, career-wise, I was actually planning to go into biomedical engineering. You know, help the world's population with new uh, uh, medical uh, devices that could be life-saving. But that was at the time of the Vietnam War era, and although they would, and I ended up with a very low draft number, sixty-nine, as I recall, and so. They would allow and defer me to get my bachelor's degree in engineering but they would not allow me to go on for that phd in biomedical engineering um, so what happened is i then ended up as i looked around for opportunities uh, actually my mom was actually helpful in this, found out that there was a obscure uh service of uh, the uniform services called the united states public health service that actually satisfied military obligation. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I explored it and I found uh, there was a place that was uh, doing uh, uh, the protection of the U.S. population against the hazards of electronic product radiation, like x-rays from color TV sets at that time or microwaves from microwave ovens. So this mixed engineering and public health, if you will. Oh, okay. And so I went there for two years in the Food and Drug Administration, the Bureau of Radiological Health in Washington, D.C. area. And that got me then interested in public health. Oh. So I've also learned in one sense as a life lesson that sometimes doors get closed on you like right. this one, mm-hmm. but other doors open up that you would never have thought about. Right. And so sometimes I think I'm learning more and more over time as these have happened to me in the past on several occasions to recognize even though I may not understand it at the time, there is the wisdom behind it. Mm. And to accept that this, I may not understand it at the moment, But if this has been put in front of me, I know that God will never test us beyond our capabilities. Mm -hmm. So there must be something that this will ultimately result in spiritual growth. And so that's been really wonderful to uh, experience and to recognize this was just another one of those.
0: Now, let's talk for a second here about public health, because this is a course of study. It's Mm -hmm. a profession. It's a what do you call it? It's a it's a a calling (laughs) it's a calling that it doesn't honestly doesn't feel like it gets a whole lot of respect Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. until there's some giant crisis um you don't but public health experts save lives into the thousands into the tens into the Mm -hmm. hundreds of thousands into the millions of lives with the actions that they take but culturally and i think this holds true in the baha'i faith as well like if you're a medical doctor, you're given a lot of respect and you're given a lot of credence for your degree. But both culturally in the West and culturally as Bahais, um, public health officials are are don't seem to be given as much respect, even though the impact of their work is. Is crucial to the the development
1: of the species on the planet. So, can you talk a little bit about about that? Yes, I think you bring up a very good point. Uh, sometimes public health is a little bit more on the invisible side, and I think it's because when public health is working well, things are not happening. Right. Children are not getting diseases mm-hmm. because of immunization. Things like this, and so um, I think that that's one reason why it is a un sung hero at the bottom of uh, people's uh, uh, maybe recognition, but in reality, it is uh, so crucial to us. I mean, I'm never going to have a situation where, as a physician, someone is coming to me and saying, uh, and I'm treating them, and they say, Doc, thank you so much. I feel so much better. I'm never going to be going out on the street and some mother rushing up to me and saying, oh, Doc, I just want to thank you that my child didn't get measles today. Mm-hmm, no, mm-hmm. that's not going to happen. Right, but you know, as a public health professional, that that is what your calling is. That that's what your altruistic motive is, is to, in fact, protect the population and especially the is- issue of social justice is very important in public health. We really are looking to the most vulnerable in our societies, the the uh, those who are. Um, not able to access easily health care systems uh, to make sure we have preventive services such as immunization for them. Uh, so uh, this is what we do in public health is to look at the most vulnerable and to make sure that our programs are directed to them. There is a, a short story that I wanted to mention that I think really drove it home for me. Please. Um, so when I was in medical school, <clears throat> my wife and I took off one year and did uh, travel teaching around the world for the Baha'i Faith. But we also combined that with local service. So, for example, uh, we went to the National Institute of Nutrition in Hyderabad, in India. We spent uh, uh, time at the uh, National Hospital in Western Samoa. And at that particular time, when I was in Samoa, I was then, um, as a medical student, having opportunity to go to uh, you know different uh, practices on the. Uh, Uh, in the hospital, but they had a visiting team of orthopedic surgeons, very senior, coming to train the Samoan doctors. So they were letting me in the operating room to, you know, sew up a little bit here and there type of thing. And I very much remember one of these, you know, senior physicians turning to me and asking, well, what are you planning to go into? And I went back and I said, well, I'm actually planning to go into public health. He didn't say anything, went back to working on this patient, and I could just see, okay, here's this macho surgeon going to turn around and, you know, belittle public health. But actually, after a few moments, he turned back to me and he said, Bob, you know what? In your career, you are going to have more impact than I have ever had in mine. He said, here we are working on this child who had polio, who should never have gotten polio to begin with. Ah. Mm. And for me to have someone at an early stage in my medical career yeah. recognizing from a senior person yeah. that value of public, public health, that someone actually got it and understood it.
0: Validating it.
1: Validating it. And then 20 years later, when I was head of the World Health Organization for Indonesia, mm-hmm. and we actually went to zero cases of polio, wow. I said to myself, aha, this is what this guy prophesized 20 years ago.
0: That's fantastic. Wow. So... Tell me more about that, bringing cases down to zero.
1: Yeah, well, that was a very interesting story in itself. um, Because when I first came to Indonesia, uh, it was in uh, 1993. uh, There were still, obviously, cases in polio going on in Indonesia. There's a global effort and still continuing for the eradication of polio in the world. And when I arrived, the UNICEF representative and the Rotary International representative, because Rotary is very much involved in, and continues to be involved with the eradication effort globally, came to me and said, look, you know, we have a little bit of a problem here. The government is not moving forward with eradication of polio uh, here in Indonesia, which is the issue of, for example, uh, making sure that all children under five have national immunization days where they receive the polio vaccine. These are the strategies that we use to be able to eradicate polio, for example. And so I went and I, one of the first things I did, I went and talked with uh, the Minister of Health Uh, He was a professor, uh, a microbiologist, in fact, by training. And I talked with him and I realized he said that really, I don't think that polio eradication is technically possible. He says that, you know, for every hundred cases of persons infected with polio, only one will actually come down with paralysis. Many people don't realize that, but there's a silent spread that occurs. Mm. And so he felt because of that silent spread, it would just not be possible. So what I did is I went ahead and said, well, why don't we have an international conference? And we'll hold it. Uh, where would you hold it if you were in Indonesia? The Hilton. Uh, well, and, which, and <laughs> in which place? The Bali, of course. Oh, Bali. Yeah. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> so we held it in Bali. The, the Hilton minister- in Bali. The Hilton okay, in Bali. Yeah. So uh, the um, internationally came. We had the person who heads up uh, the eradication effort in the Americas came. Yep. And the minister left that meeting convinced that polio could be eradicated wow so uh, that's what i thought at the time wow so when we got back to jakarta uh, i said well we're ready to go right he said well no i need to talk to the uh, president president suharto and i said great you know uh, let me know how that comes out in a sense you have to know a little bit about indonesian culture that it's very uh, difficult for someone in indonesia to say no there are other ways that you just kind of are subtle about this okay so anyway, he came back to me and he said that President Soharto had not agreed. And I said, well, what did he say? And he said, well, you know, I, I told him that, we, you know, there's a global effort to Radekipola and that we should you know, move forward with this uh, effort here now in Indonesia. And the president asked me, do you think I should do, why, do you think we should do this? And he interpreted the president saying, do you think we should do this as saying he was not in favor of it. Oh, Again, wow. that subtlety of not saying no. Right, right so i you know i was saying well yeah we should do it you know but it's like someone going saying, like, i can't do that do you really think this is a good idea uh, and it, you
0: kind of reading that it's yes like oh he doesn't want to do precisely. it precisely yeah.
1: so um i said uh, and he said he could not go back to the president and asked again so i said well how about this i, I got to thinking uh camp on i said well look how about if i asked the director general of the world health organization to come to indonesia because the director general always meets with the head of state Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, well, that'd be fine. And if we bring this up, we bring it up, it was not going to be a problem again. Mm-hmm. So I had uh, Dr. Nakajima, who was the director general at that time, come uh, the next, about three months later to Indonesia. And we met with the president, Suyarto. And during that meeting, I, I said to the president, you know, really, one of the things we're trying to do globally is to eradicate polio. And interestingly enough, the president said exactly what he said to the minister of health was, you know, do you really think we should do this? But I was able to say, yeah, you, definitely, uh, Mr. President, that uh, we've got cases here in Indonesia. We don't want to be exporting cases to other our neighboring countries like Malaysia and things like this. It's very important that we also join this this global effort and it also is saving our own children here in Indonesia. And he said, oh, well, then, of course, we should do this. <laughs> <laughs> and so but it was like night and day because, again, President Zaharto was a very strong you know, central figure. Yeah. And so all of a sudden, we went to where... Every part of the government was at the Minister of Health's disposal, the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, to be able to get, you know, vaccine out to places and things like this. Right. And I remember very clearly that the, the minister was still very concerned. He said to me, you know, everywhere in the world, you do these national immunization days where you immunize all children under five years of age. He says, but we have like 6,000 inhabited islands. We can't do this in a day. He says, can we call this um, uh, National Immunization Week? And I said, I don't care what you call it. That's fine. As long as we're putting the effort to do it. And we laughed later because of the fact that once the central government had made this decision, all elements of society, including village leaders, everybody else was on board with this. And so... When we went to the National Immunization Week, within the first hours, something like eighty um, percent of the children had been vaccinated. They're all lined up in villages oh all goodness. over the country. So, so we should have called it National Immunization Hour. <laughs> yeah. So
0: where there's a will, it can get done it, much exactly. faster than than you'd ever. Exactly.
1: Think. But th- that's so fascinating. That
0: but we skipped ahead a little bit. Yep. So how did you meet the the beautiful Hanju and tell me uh, uh, more about your Uh, Baha'i journey and then I want to get to some uh, some larger ideas.
1: Yes. So uh, after that uh, Working for two years as you recall uh, in the Food and Drug Administration Bureau of Biological Health uh, The Universal House of Justice had asked for those who could to go uh, International travel teaching or pioneering at the last year of the nine-year plan So uh, I decided I what year is this Uh, this was 72 okay? so what i decided to between 72 and 73 so what i decided to do was uh, leave the public health service and i would uh travel and they asked if, uh, africa was a great need so for the next uh, so i went one year but uh, mainly in africa and so uh that's also by the way where i had even more reinforced the idea of public health and specifically working in the international arena because i could see really the world's great needs was not so much in the developed country, but in the developing countries, um, especially like in Africa that are underserved. So during that trip, I then also went to around the world and I spent uh, two weeks in Korea. And so when I first went to the Korean National Baha'i Center, uh, my wife, future wife, Hanju, was there uh, playing a Korean instrument because she was preparing for a performance. And so we met, we talked for a half hour or so. Uh, that was all it was. And But uh, it wasn't necessarily love at first sight at that time either, but it was significant enough for me. I actually wrote in my diary that I'd met this person. But I told her she was going to go, coming to the United States to do her education, graduate education in nutrition. And so I gave her my address and said, gee, you look me up if you're in the U.S. Well, which she didn't. <laughs> but it turns out that there was the big conference in um, St. Louis where 10,000 Baha'is were gathered. And so I was there and it was nighttime. There was slide slide was being shown. And so I saw an empty chair and I asked to the person, you know, is this chair taken or may I use it? And they said, uh, no, it's fine. And she looked up and she said, oh. I remember you. You were Bob Farley w- when we met in Korea. I said, oh, my goodness, you know, what a small world. Oh, nice. And so then it turns out that she was living in uh, Washington, uh, D.C. area. Uh, I was going to go back to the public health service over the summer to do an internship with them. And so we met again. Then it uh, turns out that her roommate was from San Francisco. So when they graduated, they went to San Francisco to uh, get uh uh, jobs because her the roommate's brother was there. Then at ended up where I ended up getting accepted to medical school, UC San Francisco. So we met again at the Baha'i Center there. So we just kept just kept bumping into pe- each, bumping other, each other. Bumping each other and we were yeah. like, hey maybe there's some divine wisdom to this. <laughs> right. Right. And so we became married then. Wow. So
0: let's look a little bit at the spiritual underpinnings of this pandemic. Um, you have a Baha'i perspective. I, I feel like I, I read an interesting article comparing this pandemic to to climate change, that they're both um, issues for the planet, for a species inhabiting the planet. Species of you know number different genders and and races and and, and classes and cultures uh, having to tackle uh, a big planetary issue. This is not about country by country. Um, how do you feel like this? Something like this plays into the Baha'i teachings and where the human race is going and where it needs to go.
1: So, I think uh, it's a good question. Um, I think that the recognition that as Baha'is, we really do have a world view, a world outlook. And I think that's really important because oftentimes people are very narrowly centered in their own maybe community or their own state or their own nation or their own ethnic group. Or even just their family. Family, exactly. Clan. So, so yeah. that um, we have a a larger viewpoint and can see things in a perspective that others may not uh, be seeing so the way i look at it in a sense if if we look at the whole world like a single human body and different parts they're like the brain or the kidney or uh, toes whatever if the brain uh looks at this toe and sees it uh, festering wound it cannot say Oh, you know, that's just the toe. Uh, It's not my problem Uh, because ultimately that toe could seed, uh, you know, septicemia, blood infection that could kill the whole body, brain and all. So I think that we can understand this interconnectedness maybe more than others can see it so that that child in Africa to make sure that they get their vaccines should be just as important to us as we are here in America to make sure our own children are receiving preventive care and treatments because ultimately disease in that child, with the travel that we have today, the interconnectedness of the world that we have today, concede ultimately a pandemic here because within 24 hours you could be anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. So I think that that recognition of the the organic interconnectedness of us all is something that the Baha'i perspective provides. You know, one way I look at it
0: is that what Baha'u'llah has shared with the planet through his revelation is that we're in the midst of a number of different pandemics going on, but we're under spiritual pandemics, um, materialism, um, selfishness, nationalism. Some of these are pandemics that have caused millions and millions of deaths, and if not direct deaths... Um, they're certainly destroying the environment of the planet and um, leading the mass of humanity to live lives of, of of great sadness and anxiety, like in the case of materialism. So, uh, how do you think this disease pandemic and and you know tackling the, the coronavirus is similar to tackling, uh, as Baha'u'llah has charged us with, to tackling the these spiritual pandemics that are uh, affecting and causing disease in humanity um,
1: spiritually. Well, just as uh, infectious diseases are contagions that can spread around, like we're talking about the COVID-19 situation, I think also you can have contagious ideas, negative ideas, that uh, can spread, uh, just like you were mentioning of materialism, greed, nationalism, racism, racism mm-hmm. yeah, ageism, uh, all of these uh, that can plague mankind. And just like in the sense that we are now having to come together and deal with this infectious disease pandemic on not just a local level, but on a level at the global level, uh, magnitude scale yeah, mm-hmm. scale such that um, we really have to transcend these limitations of, of race nationalism uh, all to where we will ultimately become a better people and more together from it I hope that that's exactly the types of things that will help break down perhaps some of these barriers that have separated us and the ideologic fronts that you've just mentioned to be able to be another era of looking at humanity as one. The earth is but one country and mankind its citizen, Baha'u'llah has said. So I think, I think that, that perspective may come about. If we look at what are some of the, the silver linings to this problem, I think one of them can be the idea that we can and need to work together as a global community to solve global problems. Yeah. That may actually work to our favor for the, some of these other bigger ones and longer term lasting ones like climate change. Right. that are so even th- more existential and a threat. So
0: this may cause great suffering and it, mm-hmm. co- it may cause millions of deaths, mm-hmm. but there may be, at the end of this, some very valuable lessons that we need to learn as a species on this planet.
1: Yes, and, t- and typically it does take sometimes external... Pressures, sure, to suddenly bring people together. Something's far beyond them and their own society. They realize they need to work together. Right, and that may actually be something that forges in this crucible of mankind uh, a collaborative, cooperative spirit that arises. I'm hoping that that's what people can do. As compared to, uh, well, it's all go to the lifeboats and it's only me. You know, uh, let's make sure that we actually go beyond. Well, that. speaking
0: of going to the lifeboats and it's only me, we're seeing this in the great toilet paper crisis mm-hmm. of 2020, where. It feels like every man for himself.
1: TP twenty twenty. Yeah, okay. <laughs> exactly.
0: Yeah. But you know, if you look on the news in America right now, um, it's but it's all over the world. I saw it, saw it in Scotland and in Australia. It's it's like every man for himself. Like go to the Costco and just
1: mm-hmm.
0: how much can I squirrel away uh, this kind of this kind of panic? Uh, yeah. So. We're still in this place of every man for himself. It's not people buying toilet paper to distribute among the poor.
1: Yes. And I think that's exactly what we need to be recognizing. And maybe even as, as we're seeing this play out and people suddenly realize, hey, I don't have access or things that, well, we, I'm hoping that we will actually see where people recognize, well, actually, I will be able to share. I will be help my, help my neighbor. I mean, this happens when you think about it in wildfires, earthquakes, Mm -hmm. People suddenly start coming together as a community. Creates community, yes. And and, uh, although we're not there yet at this stage, it appears, with the COVID-19 pandemic, we may get there to where we actually can actually see people working together collaboratively, cooperatively, neighborhood by neighborhood, country by country, uh, to realize that it's not isolationism, but in fact, uh, coming together that will be important. And tell me
0: something. As I was listening to your life story, I was really struck because when you became a Baha'i, you went all in. You were like, mm. "This is going to affect my career. Mm-hmm. This is going to affect the choices I make with the course of my study." Oh, the Universal House of Justice called on me to go pioneer. I'm, I'm just going to go. I'm mm-hmm. going to. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a poor, you know, mm-hmm. graduate student, and I'm going to trot out to Africa for a year. And um, why do you think it is? I know you're a very mm-hmm. humble person. You're not going to, you know. You know, ring your own bell and sing your own praises. But what enabled you and empowered you to m- take such a committed stand? I mean, plenty of people mm. become Baha'is and then they kind of go to some feasts and maybe mm-hmm. plan a couple holy days and mm-hmm. do a couple of fasts, and they're they're kind of half in, half out. Maybe not not to judge anyone. Everyone's on their own spiritual journey. But I, I I'm inspired by mm-hmm. how you went all in once you made that decision to believe. That you were, you changed the course of mm-hmm. your, your mm-hmm. studies and the course of your entire life?
1: Very good question. I think that uh, as I reflect on it now, I think one of the things is the recognition for myself that once I intellectually am committed to something, emotionally, uh, everything else follows that as well. And, and the emotional aspect as well, I think combined, uh, the intellect follows the emotion as well in this. That I really do, I tend in my life to commit myself. You know, whether that's uh, now I'm learning guitar, for example, and singing. You know, I'm committing it to. I'm I'm actually uh, wanting to make the best I can do uh, with it. And I think the same thing that I want to make the best of my life. And when I found then that that uh, my life was aligned to these spiritual principles that I really believed in, it, it provided me with the the strength to, to go ahead and do ambitious and bold things, uh, to make something of my life, uh, to give it meaning and purpose. Uh, were there any
0: quotes or books that inspired you toward that end?
1: I think it was a number of things uh, that uh, inspired me. I think the the Baha'i friends that I met in the in the club that I was with, some of you may know people like Arthur Dahl or David West or um, and More, Gail and Gary Morrison, and, and they were very... Uh, uh, inspiring personalities in their own right, uh, if you will. And I think it was uh, recognition that we all fed off ourselves to to really deepen and understand what was happening and and that not just keeping it intellectually, but recognizing that you actually have to act, not just believe, but turn belief into action. I think Mm -hmm. that's one thing that that I found. But deeds,
0: not words, be your adorning. Perfect
1: example of that. And I think that what happens also, I think deeds and words then reinforce each other. That you, you know, you can you talk about you know vicious cycles, but but I think you can have virtuous cycles as well, mm-hmm. where these reinforce each other. And so when I was in Africa, for example, meeting Baha'is from you know small villages to capital cities, I became so inspired myself. Oh my goodness, here are my Baha'i brothers and sisters all over the world, and no matter. What background they've come from, uh, what socioeconomic status they were, whether it was sleeping on in mud huts on the floor. Uh, it was it was a recognition of the commonness that we faced. and I realized, oh my, this is going to change the world. And uh, I think that just reinforced itself too, in my mind. That's beautiful. And, Uh, I would be remiss if I skipped over
0: this guitar thing that you just alluded to. So Bob uh, shared with me some uh, very special YouTube videos you've taken on in this chapter of your life. You're you're now a professor at UCLA in public health, and you're also a rock star. Tell us us about Gage. Will you please introduce the Baha'i world and the world, in fact, the entire world to Gage? Who's
1: Gage? That's right. With this, you know, I had the doc, Dr. Jekyll and, and Mr. Hyde, so okay. to speak. Okay. So uh, I realized that uh, although I had plunked around with a guitar a bit when I was in college, I really hadn't done anything with that before. But when I had the opportunity to transition from the L.A. County Department of Public Health uh, and head of communicable disease control, which, as you can probably appreciate, is a kind of a 24-7 job, especially now, right now. You can imagine what my colleagues are experiencing. But we did some similar with Ebola or Zika and things like this when I was there. Uh, to being a professor at UCLA where I have uh, a bit more control of some of the time uh, in my life with it And so I decided said well, I'm going to pick back up on this um, and I always had wanted to be in a band and So I found out there was a thing called join the band here uh, locally in, in Sherman Oaks um, area and so they take you and audition you and Decide on your level of ability or lack thereof in my case, but Uh, And then pair you with other people about your same level with other uh, things. So uh, it was very nice. You come together once a week. But your band is all old geezers like you. Uh, Well, actually, we have some young ones, too. Oh, so did they put you in a band with like a seven-year-old or something? Uh, Not a seven-year-old, which they do have (laughs) bands that way, but at least, you know, in a 20-year-old. Okay. Uh, We have our adult bands, our teen bands, and the the kids' bands. But um, what I found was uh, it was very exciting. And what happened was that... uh, One of the, the drummer happened to be named uh, Bob Hall and they went ahead uh, and sent an email around beforehand and I, I said, oh, his name is Bob. Well, I'll probably go by Robert. And so I said to myself as I was going to bed that night and I said, well, you know, maybe I should have a stage name, (laughs) something, you know, that's strong, like, you know, Sting or Bono or something. And um, when I went to bed, I I normally never remember a dream, but I woke up the next morning and I had this word gauge, G-A-G-E. And I said, uh, well, that's not G-A-U-G-E, like a gauge in a car. I said, I don't even think that's a word. And so I looked up in the dictionary. And in fact, it is a word. It's archaic. It's something thrown down in an act of defiance. Yeah, you throw like your glove. It's yeah. a
0: Shakespearean exactly. word. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, like a Does, cap- does that throw that gauge yeah. at me, yeah. sire?
1: Yeah. yeah, and then, you know, that's promising co- combat. Mm-hmm. And just like the word engaged, promise. So I said, oh, my goodness, this is gauge. And so that provided also an alter ego, yep. an alternative personality. So, Gage is the one now that has the the leather jacket, and you know things like this. And so, and
0: folks, I've seen the video. He's in a leather jacket, <laughs> and and folks, you've got to know that Bob is a very buttoned up uh, fellow, very professorial, very respectful. No offense, but Gage has got a leather vest, <laughs> leather like a bandanas and wristbands. <laughs> and uh you're born to be wild and
1: you do some country songs too yeah so that's been really uh, a fun area of uh my personality to explore that had not been explored before and i'm thoroughly enjoying it I, I i'm also finding that uh i had not realized how much brain power i have so much more respect for musicians and performers now um not necessarily comedians but hey. uh <laughs> just, <laughs> just joking um that um you have to do right hand, your left hand, remembering the lyrics, you know the tempo, the beat, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. all of these things put together and, and also trying to do some sort of a performance. Uh, it, well, it's, it's a very uh, challenging but fun part of... Uh, learning and exploring the brain That's and probably having it grow lots of little uh, new neurons.
0: That's fantastic. Well here on the Baha'i blog uh, page for this podcast we'll put some links maybe to, to <laughs> some of Gage's uh, music videos. Suddenly
1: it'll be uh, instead of an unlisted video uh, with uh, you know a few I know, hundred... it's gonna uh, be a viral hit. Yeah, hit. It's gonna good. take off
0: <laughs> like the rocker. So going back to uh, where we started back to the coronavirus um, and this pandemic so we read recently, I'm sure you read about uh, the Italian Baha'is and what they've been doing. Mm-hmm. That was in the Baha'i News Service, a really great announcement that came out about home visits, mm-hmm. building community, you know, online devotionals, ways to, to get, get involved and, and be of service. But for Baha'is out there who are concerned, mm-hmm. what are some other ways that they can be of service? I know that the, the virus has yet to hit some of the poorer areas of the world, and there may be some disastrous consequences from that but uh how can baha'is get involved mm-hmm. how, how can we give
1: back how can we be kind of world citizens in service at this mm-hmm. time of crisis uh, i think a number of things one is again being good citizens so if your local public health department is uh asking for you to social distance uh rather than you know grousing about it and telling other people how upset you are about it to say look you know we have to be good citizens here, that there are vulnerable people in our community, the elderly, those with multiple medical conditions. And even if we have to sacrifice a little bit ourselves, because we're young and we know that we're not going to really come down with serious disease, um, we have to sacrifice for the betterment of others. So I think that Baha'i is being a voice of calm, being a voice of cooperation with their public health um, official recommendations. And trying to practice those and promote those with other people, explaining to people why the reasoning is behind here is very helpful. And as um, uh, we talked yesterday in your junior youth group, when they were trying to think about what service things they could do, I had mentioned, well, you know, off the fly, one of the things that might be happening is that uh, the elderly and those with multiple medical conditions may not be uh, going out to buy things that they may need or uh, groceries that they may need. Mm -hmm. And so maybe Baha'i... uh, youth and young people that can be of service to the elderly in the community not necessarily just behinds, but others that they may know as neighbors do shopping for them yeah do shopping Aaron's for them, them. Yeah. yes exactly mm-hmm. that uh, so that they help protect them from being out in society where they may be at higher risk so i think there's lots of probably innovation that we can think about yeah uh, in this and i i think everyone should just kind of put on their thinking cap and say okay well what what could my role be to here than just on my own lifeboat i'm just taking care of myself okay what is my neighbor's situation what are my um co-workers or family or friends uh needing at this time that i could also help with
0: right so instead of running out to costco and stockpiling Mm -hmm. toilet paper um you know run out to
1: costco and get the toilet paper for your neighbor (laughs) perfect exactly
0: well um Dr. Robert Kim Farley, aka Gage, <laughs> uh, it has been such a pleasure. Thanks for fitting me in your very busy schedule. You were just on CNN, yes, right yes. recently mm-hmm. um, as a as as a as an authority, a talking head, an expert. <laughs> uh, that was very nice to see. I think you should have dressed as Gage.
1: That would have uh, perhaps gotten even more uh, viewership. Yeah, I, I think suppose. So. Uh-huh. Yeah,
0: um, uh, it's been such a pleasure hearing your story and getting. Uh, you know, caught up on the facts around COVID-19 and thank you so much for so generously giving of your time.
1: Well, I thank you actually of having come on over at this time because I think that uh, it is really nice for those who are your listeners on the blog to be able to maybe give a different perspective or a calmness about What we can do uh, with the COVID-19, the fact that uh, this is an opportunity for us all to work together and uh, rise to the occasion as compared to uh, submitting to uh, fear or stigma or rumors. So I think it's very important. Well said. Thank you, Bob. Thanks for listening to Baha'i
0: Blogcast. Hope you enjoyed the episode and the conversation. Check out more fun Baha'i stuff on Baha'iblog.net. Thank you so much and good night.